Hello and welcome to this special collaborative podcast between Media Voices and Journalism.co.uk. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And we are bringing you this podcast from last week's News Rewild event in London. And with us is Jacob. Yep, I'm Jacob Granger, senior reporter of Journalism.co.uk, organisers of the News Rewired conference, which we were all at last week. News Rewired is an event for media professionals that we organise twice a year with the aim of giving people practical advice and knowledge to take back to their newsrooms, and we explored a number of really pressing topics facing the media industry last week. The big pressing topic was change. There's a lot of change on the horizon, uh, and newsrooms basically need to get their shit together. I think the focus of this podcast and the focus of News Rewild in, in general was how people do that, how they face the change. There's a number of themes that emerged from the day, We've been quite selective uh, about the ones that we thought were worth including in this podcast. Just as the speakers at News Rewires, we're quite focused on things that are worth pursuing rather than things that are just out there. And what's really come through is skills, leadership, subscriptions, and overarching a digital transformation. And I will just say there was plenty more that came out of the day. Jacob, I know journalism.co.uk is covering quite a lot of that separately. So where can they find more about what happened at News Rewired? Yep, I'm currently in the thick of doing lots of write-ups at the moment. Um, those articles are headed out on journalism.co.uk, uh, newsrewired.com. And I know that you also put out a piece uh, out on the uh, Media Voices based on your keynote, Esther, as well. So to set the scene, we'll start as News Rewired started with Jane Barrett, the global editor for media news strategy at Reuters, who gave the opening remarks. So Jane began by setting out some of the challenges and opportunities that Reuters themselves are looking at moving into 2024. She sees one of their biggest pressures as journalism itself being under threat. This is kind of increasingly um, a difficult time to be a journalist. Independent journalism is not appreciated by our politicians. It's not appreciated by the, the army of of not, what do we call them now, they're not Twitterati, the, the, the ex-army or whatever it is. You know, we're under fire a lot and it's, it's pretty exhausting, right? Whether that's just being sort of called fake news, we're being criticised, what being um, you know, the, the dog whistle of MSM, uh, whatever it happens to be. But, but also what we're now seeing is there's that external pressure from critics um, wanting us to take a side, yeah, why are you telling this type of story? Why aren't you condemning this? Why aren't you um, taking, taking an, an angle on this? And that can be from anything, of course, with the wars that we've got running. Um, Israel-Gaza has been particularly difficult like this. We've been, been coming under all sorts of pressure as journalists to take a side or to take another side. But also on issues that I know we're going to be discussing here later on, like climate and politics ahead of a huge election year next year. I think about a third of the world votes next year. And so there's a huge amount of external pressure coming at us. At the same time as the external pressure from critics, we've got the kind of the, the pressure of the share of voice. Here we talked about this a lot um, during the pandemic in terms of why are people turning away from news when they could just be going to watch Netflix or they could be nowadays scrolling. I saw a stat the other day saying that people spend about an hour scrolling TikTok and they spend about two minutes reading the news. So you know, how, do we, how do we fight against that external pressure? Jane also set the scene for one of the other major threads of the day, looking internally and managing healthy workplaces, from generational challenges to physical and mental safety. 
Inside newsrooms, it's hard work as well. One of my favourite challenges, and when I say challenges, it's always a positive as well as a negative, right? It is an opportunity. Um, but is now to think about kind of this multi-generational newsroom. We've now got up to four generations working in the same newsroom. And, it can, and the four generations are really, really different from a boomer, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z. Between them, they're just, we're so different. And I love that. I love the diversity of that. I love the fact that we bring different skills, different approaches, different ideas to the table. But it also does present a real management and leadership challenge. You know, how do we keep these communities together? How do we all work for that sort of North Star of great independent journalism um, when we're all coming at it from a slightly different angle? And some of those external issues, therefore, sort of come into the newsroom. And in a hybrid working environment, it's even harder sometimes to, to achieve that sort of goal of everyone working together for, for, a common, for a common good. Second one that I would say, and we've kind of alluded to this, but we've got two wars going on. Physical safety is incredibly hard, but mental safety and emotional safety is incredibly hard. Even as leaders in our industry, we need to look after our mental health. If we're not well, then we can't look after our teams. And so, as you will know, um, we lost one of our colleagues in um, Lebanon a few weeks ago. God, we all, all choke up when we talk about it. But Issam was killed um, on the Lebanese border. The, the team in Israel, Gaza, um, Palestinian territories... The whole of the Middle East is absolutely devastated by his death, and yet they have to get up every morning and they have to keep on reporting the story. We have a huge team still in Gaza, and they can't get out. They are just out they're just there reporting the story, but they're also having to worry about their families and their friends, and where are they going to get their next meal from? Where are they going to get water from? You know, these are really fundamental, <coughs> basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs things that they are struggling with. So how do we as leaders, how do we in journalism keep people going physically, mentally, emotionally. It's a huge internal challenge and one not to take lightly. As we've already mentioned, AI was inevitably a hot topic throughout the day. But Jane put it in a wider context of the skills we'll need to be adapting to rapidly in the next few years in order to continue serving audiences. I know that we've got lots of audience people here, we've got newsletter people here, podcast people here, you know, all of these new things that didn't necessarily exist 10 years ago. But there'll be other ideas in here, and I'm sure whether I get onto the AI one, um, we'll get to start thinking about all these different new roles, new skills that we need to be building when we're already exhausted kind of trying to cover the news. Which takes me on to that kind of meta challenge and AI. It's almost exactly a year now since ChatGPT was unleashed on the public. This is kind of the iPhone moment for Nokia, right? If we don't start working out how we're going to deal with this, what is the, mo- the moment of the arrival of generative AI at scale going to be doing now to the user expectations, how we work, how we expect to interact with information, and how are we as a, as a journalistic community going to respond to that? How are we going to get ahead? It's moving so fast. And I took a week off, I got back, and I was like, oh, it's as if I don't know anything again. You know, it's, it's just going really, really rapidly. And so I think that's going to kind of now be a good internal challenge, but an external challenge, an audience challenge, a journalism challenge of how do we now embrace the power of AI to help and enhance our reporting? Um, And also then how do we deal with the challenges and the threats of generative AI? That might be language models stealing our content. It might be um, the fact that models are famously, I hate the word hallucinating, but making stuff up. You know, how does that erode yet further the issues that we have of trust and fact and truth? And these are not just for journalism, but actually for society at large.
At News Rewired, we caught up with Jonathan Patterson, managing editor at the News Movement. He thinks that finding staff with the right skills and even working with creators will be critical to reaching new audiences and building trust. There was a lot of disparaging stuff after the Reach announcement last week around creators. Now, we're not talking about social influencers. We're moving on. We're talking about people who have the skills to operate on social media. And the challenge that we're trying to address in the news movement is that we are um, bringing those people with that expertise, the ones who understand how to tell stories on social, um, to, to work with um, journalists and editors to produce quality content. And we've been very clear about that. We're, we're, we've got emerging skills in, in all fronts, but we're, we're bringing together some really high-quality journalism with some high-quality social content. And it seems to be working. We seem to be resonating with audiences. We seem to be reaching audiences. So I think it is possible. I think we shouldn't, um, uh, shouldn't be frightened of it. I think... It, it, if we want to tell stories on social, we should be telling stories in ways that work on social. And that means working with creators. And having working alongside good journalists to back it up, I think that's, that's the solution. One of the standout sessions of the day was from Professor Lucy Coon, a leading industry expert on strategy, innovation and leadership. She gave a keynote on the central leadership battles ahead in 2024. We caught up with her to find out how prepared she thinks publishers are to face the waves of disruption Jane talked earlier about. I think the basic pressures and trends and responses have not gone away. It's a structurally super challenged sector. It's competitively outgunned. It needs to use all of its resources super cleverly in order to compete. It has resources. It has extraordinary people working in the sector. It has really, really strong brands that have a really deep emotional connection to their audiences. And I think they, as a sector, we really underuse that asset. It's very hard for new players to set up a new brand fast. It's almost impossible. I think partly in the media industry in general, in the news industry, there's this kind of anti-commercial bias about we focus all our energies, our creativity, our resources on making great content and the business kind of needs to run itself. And exactly as you say, this is a business issue, building those brands, protecting those brands, because they are actually total blue chip brands, in fact. Um, So I think there has to be an acceptance. In addition to creating the content, we need to really communicate on a brand level with audiences and readers and I think there's a reluctance to do that Um, I mean I'm always fascinated it's a kind of different issue but inside media organizations how amazingly skilled and sophisticated they are at communicating with audiences outside but often the internal communications is really not very good (laughs) silos and and there's not so much energy put into crafting the message and making sure it delivers for the audience and repeating it so I think it's part of that kind of I remember talking to someone in the states that have public service media organization he said honestly here even the managers have an anti-managerial bias <laughs> you know so so i think that's a big issue but i think especially we've seen with the as we've entered the kind of digital information jungle the platform jungle understanding how news travels and and on being able to control the destination is absolutely critical and that's going to get much much worse with with generative ai and those brands are a way to kind of build trust, to cut through the jungle, to make sure you, you achieve what you want to. When it comes to tools like AI, as with any other new technology, strong leadership 
will be essential in navigating its challenges and opportunities. For six years, Kevin Donnellan worked as an editor at Storyful, verifying trending content and investigating misinformation with a focus on assisting UK newsrooms. Now working as a consultant, his work is focused on using social discovery and verification skills to make sense of the wild west of AI-assisted created content and how this affects publishers, agencies and newsrooms. At News of Wired, Kevin led a workshop in getting the most from generative tools in image, text and video creation. Yeah, we're kind of at a weird point where everyone's very excited about AI, kind of from like executive level down to kind of people just starting out in the industry. But there's not necessarily honest discussions happening about how we're using AI. I think um, I know myself, if I was working in a newsroom, if I was a journal journalist and I was finding ways that AI was helping me in, in, in my day to day work. I don't know if I'd be shouting it from the rooftops um, because there's, there's that level of just kind of uh, worry that you'll uh, kind of talk your, yourself out of a job or that there, you might be kind of coming up against maybe pushback from all skilled journalists saying, well, that's not journalism. Why, why are you using, uh, you know, why are you using ChatGBT for, a, for an early draft or whatever it is? And then, yeah, there's also kind of a, maybe a lack of honesty at kind of C-suite level where, where people are talking about kind of sweeping changes or thinking about maybe sweeping changes for journalism that that may not necessarily help journalists but may help the bottom line. Kevin thinks media leaders need to get their head around using AI to make things better rather than cheaper. If you go in and are very honest across the board, if everyone feels honest and comfortable about talking about how they're engaging with AI and they feel comfortable that if you show that you've eliminated something that takes 20% of your working day, that's not going to take away 20% of your salary, you know? Like, I know that's a quite a simplistic way of looking at it, but it's saying, okay, great, we, we've managed to get rid of that. How can we, like, better use your time in a better way? And it's also maybe about talking about kind of task-based work rather than putting in your, your hours and saying, what's the smartest way of working rather than just kind of, kind of, uh, presenteeism um, so it's a whole different attitude change culture shift it's not just in journalism it's across the, it's across all industries but um, yeah in journalism we're, we're going to have to figure out a way of navigating that in a, in a kind of open and honest way and it seems that people aren't having honest conversations internally about the use of AI it's been interesting chatting to people just after the workshop that like, everyone's telling me about what they are, how they've used AI but not everyone is is having kind of open and honest conversations with their employer about how that is because they're worried that it's going to be like in some instances you're worried about the headline of you know like x publisher is using ai to you know like this kind of scaremonger so we're kind of part of the problem as well we can sometimes go for the, the scaremongering headline about how things happen but also it's just it's kind of very early stage experiments and people were just kind of asking me about how how that's done they're also kind of worried about things like if if a chat tool replaces google as your your search engine of choice it's not a search engine but if, if it performs the function of google for you how are how are news articles going to be recommended and so much of that is black box at the moment and there's no concrete answers in that so there's a huge degree of uncertainty for news the news industry at the moment ai is probably the main area in which publishers feel like they're desperately trying to keep up but two ingredients will help curb these challenges, strong leadership 
we've touched on that already, and greater industry collaboration. That's according to Isabel Regal, an independent media consultant that we'll hear more from later on. But for now, she provides us with an important dose of reality. AI is one of a few areas that are better solved together. The other, that we'll circle back to, is finding sustainable business models. I think we're seeing more of it, I, uh, not nearly enough. I mean, obviously, traditionally, media is a very competitive industry, right? It's always about beating the other paper in town or, or, or wanting to get the scoop. Um, I think increasingly, and, and I'm on the board of the Public Interest News Foundation, and I work with a lot of the kind of a smaller indie entrepreneurial newsrooms, and they know that they don't have all the resources and that, you know, working in partnership, you know, whether that's for the distribution of your content or pulling forces uh, together on, on reporting something or, or you know, working, uh, you know, someone who works more with the written word, collaborating with a podcast production company. You know, I think we're seeing more and more of that. I um, it's, There's something that made a lot of impression on me when I was a, a student and I entered this very competitive um course to you know there was there was going to be exams at the end of two years they were kind of going to determine the rest of your life and on day one our our professor said you know look around the room that this is not your competition your competition is elsewhere this is the people that you're going to need to lean on to make it through um and I really think as an industry we need we need to start thinking about this like this which is the rest of this industry is not our competition you know we have there's just so many more uh, companies, you know, vying for people's attention and time and and trying to break our democracies. And so the people, the people in this room, the people in this industry, like we need, we need to, I think, pull together. I mean, I like a healthy sense of competition. I think, you know, of course you want to, you know, you want to have, you want to have the better podcast. You want to have the scoop. You want to, you want to win the awards and not the other guys. That's fine. As long as it's, you know, friendly kind of emulating competition, but, but we should all wish and hope for and support everyone else's success because ultimately um, we just really can't afford <laughs> to have more media failing. You know, we, we just, we all need to, to get together on that. Whether publishers have been in the subscriptions game for decades or are considering launching their first paywall, sharing experiences about what persuades people to part with their money, especially in the current economic environment, is something that is front of mind for many industry leaders. Dr. Bartosz Wilczyk is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Media and Communication at the LMU Munich. He moderated a panel at Newsroom Wired about how publishers can nail their subscription pitch and exploring what compels readers to pay. He identified some common themes between the organisations on his panel, which included established membership publishers like The Guardian and those newer to the game like Dazed. So this panel was amazing, so consisted of very different news organizations uh, that pursue different strategies. So we had uh, Charles Minty from The Guardian News Media, Harry Slater, Based Media, Rosina Breen, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and Yoshi Hermer from Mill Media, so very different contexts. The similarity or the common strategy was basically that those news organizations very much focus on appeals, meaning... Audiences support independent quality journalism through a subscription or a donation. This was like one common theme that we saw. What I found very interesting is that they are developing basically their models further. So community-based, let's say, appeals are becoming increasingly important. We saw them also in our results. But this is something very much 
coming, basically. Bartos had some advice from all the publishers he studied about where they can get started with reader revenue. He says publishers have to be able to identify what makes their content distinctive. Well, figuring out what is basically your content offer, what makes your content offer distinctive, and also what is your target audience. And from that on, uh, develop a strategy regarding an appeal or a message that we would use. This can be on the news website, this can be via newsletters that we heard today, uh, but this can be also via app that you have. You certainly have to have a very good journalistic high product, right? Uh, and this is basically the starting point. And then you can add, okay, this is important for society. Uh, you can reach a community, for instance. But we see also, uh, maybe I can add this, that we have also the so-called tri- price transparency uh, appeal. Uh, this means that news organization can also raise awareness about, uh, let's say, overall critical financial situation and that this is a reason why a subscription or a donation is needed to support journalism. As perhaps one of the most well-known free-to-view publishers with a successful membership scheme, The Guardian also has a reputation for being unafraid to experiment with wording in their appeal banners. The Guardian leans into trust as part of that membership appeal, as their Director of Digital Reader Revenues, Charles Minty, outlined on the panel. The Guardian is one of the most trusted uh, news brands in, in the UK and the world, and we definitely absolutely lean into that, particularly as you were saying about you know, echo chambers and fake news, are very much positioning ourselves as, um, as, as an alternative uh, to that, and that very much being what people are paying for. Um, or, so we've got a very, very, I think it's like something like 9% of uh, news reading audiences in the UK actually, actually pay for any form of news and 100%, you know, read, read or, or, or participate. And, um, and yeah, we, so we, we, I suppose, use that to our advantage to say, you know, we are trusted, credible, you mm. know, independent quality news source. And not only do we make the, the barrier to entry low for anybody, it's also, like I said, one of the main motivations is that people are paying in the sense that to keep it open, freely available to all, because it, it's never been more important that quality, trusted news sources are open and available um, uh, to all. Uh, so, yeah, so we, we, de- we definitely lean into that. The Mills' Joshi Herman has been hitting industry headlines frequently recently, following a round of investment a £1.75 million valuation and a recent expansion into Birmingham. For his titles, there are a combination of factors that lead a small but growing number of people to pay for local news. I think for us, the big ones are, there is, there is paywalled content, so there's about half of what we publish is, is, is paid. So there's clearly an incentive, like that. there are stories here that I can, I can get hold of if, if I pay. I think the big ones, though, are, people want to feel like they are backing an institution that will be good for their city. So it, I've seen people tweet about, like, I see this as like an investment in, in the city, or as I, I see it as a way of improving my local community. So I think a huge one is um, people want to do that. They want to back an institution that they think is going to make things better. Mm-hmm. And I think the other one is they want to feel part of something. I think uh, people want to feel a bit of a connection to it. I think maybe on the national level, there's been a certain amount of sort of distance opening up between... <coughs> news titles and readers because the internet has forced everyone to go for like enormous scale to make money Mm -hmm. and when you go for large scale I think you slightly uh, 
sever your relationship with readers or, or you make it more difficult to have a, a sort of really meaningful relationship with readers because you're looking to get another 10 million people on your site. And I think what we're trying to do is rebuild that relationship with readers. And I think people like to feel part of things. They come along to our events. They, they, they talk in the comments. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of a community there. So I think for us, it's probably those two um, factors. But what about the detail? Well, The Mill actually tailors their marketing messages around the stories they do that week, as they only publish a very small number compared to larger news organisations. People respond well if you show them the impacts that you are having. Because if, if, if they are reading your thing, and then they can see that your reporters have had an impact, so a local rule has been changed because of an investigation you did, or a bunch of businesses that you exposed for not paying their staff are now paying their staff, or these just little incremental changes that you're having in society as a result of your journalism, if you then do it, let's, so let's say we do a couple of those stories in a week, we might have our appeal on Sunday for new members. We might really tailor it around, you know, our staff writer, Molly, who's been working on this story for, for weeks now. It took all this. People like to see under the bonnet of the journalism, I find. Like, people like to see, like, how did you go about that? So if we give people a little bit of insight into um, the process by which we got the story the amount we had to invest in it. If we've been like threatened by a lawyer or something like that, we'll normally throw that into the appeal. Because people like to see that like you are a small independent media company, you've got all these challenges, here's how you're overcoming them, here's how you're standing up for readers. Um, when we do those kind of appeals, I tend to find that they are more effective than a sort of generic appeal, here's why we're great, here's why you should support us. Like something quite specific about what's been happening in our journalism that week, I find is quite good for us. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism is another small publisher operating without a dedicated marketing team. They are just about to launch their Bureau memberships, and they see both editorial and community connection as key to making sure subscription appeals create an impact, as Rosina Breen explains. I think it has to be a mix of editorial, because journalists tell the story really well and kind of... um, essentially make people's eyes light up when you talk to them about our work and um, so how they message is really important. I think communities want to feel close to the reporters doing the job and so that's a really important relationship and also you know I think um, we're quite lucky or proactive about having a diverse team and that includes um, sort of age diversity background or, or geographical class and so, you know, we um, will do a lot of work with our team in terms of how is this landing with you? What should we be saying and taking feedback and also not being scared to iterate or fail? Because some of our messaging may, you know, may fall flat on its face. And as a kind of boss of an organisation, you're saying this is the way we're going. And then suddenly, you know, you kind of get that tumbleweed moment where nobody is sort of donating and then... But, you know, we have to be in an we are in an environment where we need to take risks and some of the messaging will work. Some of it won't. Dazed's membership scheme is just under two years old. And rather than being about paying for access to content, it's more of a community or club of young creatives. Digital director Harry Slater explained that it's taken quite a big mindset shift internally to get it off the ground. Now with membership and essentially asking people to give us money, we've had to have quite a big uh, kind of shift of mindset internally. So UX has become so much more important, and we're, we're really championing that um, within the, in the digital. And um, uh, we've also uh, put a lot more effort into, into products and kind of making the, the rest of the organisation realise that when we're asking people to part with cash, we need to be really sensible and really cautious about that and make sure that we get it right. 
Um, and so kind of elevating those elements uh, of, of the organization, UX and product has been absolutely key for us. We've recently just um, made our sign-up process much quicker, much simpler. When Days Club launched about 20 months ago, we asked people for a huge amount of information. Uh, your, like your full name, your email address, your date of birth, kind of okay, that's, that's kind of fine, we sort of need that. Then we were going on to ask for things like phone numbers and mailing addresses and your career stage and all of this. And our readers, again, being quite young, are quite cautious about handing over that amount of information, even if they know the brand. So we scrapped that. We just asked for your name and your email address and you need a password, and that's it. Um, we're also going to look at making cancelling really easy as well. Yes. Uh, because it can be quite frustrating, I think, if you're trying to get out of a subscription and it proves impossible. The FT is another well-known subscriptions publisher, but they weren't at News Rewired to talk about subscriptions. Instead, they featured in a session about broadening their portfolio and becoming more than a newspaper, from a new B2B subscription service to its consulting arm, FT Strategies. Isabel, the panel's moderator, shared her biggest takeaways with us. So the FT has been really good at figuring out different businesses that made sense next to their primary business of, of being a news a newsroom, really. And um, I, we had um, someone from ST Strategies, uh, which I personally really admire as a business. It's a, it's a media consulting. It's taking everything yeah. that the FT has been great yeah. at doing for itself and then teaching other people in the news industry how to do this. So it's actually really great for the whole ecosystem uh, and not just for them. And it makes money for them. Uh, and the other businesses, FT Life, which is their events. Um, and I really appreciated um, how practical they got in their answers about how media can operationalize these things and also how to make it happen if you're a much smaller newsroom and you don't have the, the scale and the resources that FT does. Essentially, they're trying to find uh, businesses that obviously diversify the revenue, mm -hmm. but in a way that doesn't scatter their attention, that is always uh, faithful to the brand and to the mission of, of doing high quality journalism. And it all kind of feeds into that. So the events, you know, they break news on stage at events and the events, you know, obviously help the reporters cultivate sources and all of that. The, um, the media, the FT strategies, the consulting arm, really builds a healthier ecosystem for everyone, which, you know, ultimately I think the FT benefits from as well. So it's, um, it's, it's really quite clever in being diversified but focused. A central tug of war happening right now, and what will dictate a lot of the future, is what to do with emerging tech and platforms. Do you stick or twist? On one hand, there is pressure to adapt, mixed with this fear of being left behind if you don't do so. Smaller organisations, like the news movement, have an advantage here because they can pivot quickly, fail fast and move on with the lessons under their wing. Um, look, at the news movement we're definitely helped by the fact that we don't have a big legacy TV station, newspaper, website behind us. We're a social first organisation and we genuinely are social first and, and that is our... A real reason for being but even in the news movement there are legacy ideas developing right and we have to constantly challenge ourselves around that a year ago we would have been sitting here having a conversation about tiktok that shifted on that's moved a little bit now so we're talking a little bit more about how we show up on youtube shorts or what we need to be doing differently for for dealing with instagram and I think that those constantly flexing yourself so that you're able to deal with the new challenges as they come along, that's the sort of uh, how, how organisations will survive in the new era. However, 
History has also taught us that it's potentially wiser to wait and see how the landscape unfolds, because it all moves so quickly anyway. Anything that will last meaningfully will take time to mature. Here's Kevin Donnellan on that point. Yeah, like like if you look back on just how people adapted to digital journalism over the last 20 years and just how many people made some big declarations, how many publishers made big, big declarations in the 90s and have reversed and unreversed that decision several times since, you know, like, like even now, 20 years on, we're only really kind of maturing into subscription models for a lot of news. So those same cycles but different are going to happen with AI and they're probably going to happen a lot quicker but yeah like it, it feels like already we, 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 we've been chatting to some big organisations today where their their attitude is slightly wait and see and you, you can't argue that's um, that's necessarily a bad idea at this stage The truth of the matter is it's a little bit of both according to Lucy Kuhn Publishers must be very selective moving forward evolving at pace and making sure those doing the heavy lifting are not burning out. Those in the middle of the organisation are absolutely essential for the long term. It's really important to be clear about what what are the kind of two or three must-win battles for us right now. And I think that can be quite hard actually to work out because there is so much going on. There is this kind of turmoil on the business side of things, in the revenue side of things. You've got a really burnt out workforce. You've got ongoing need to push through transformation. You've got generative AI coming down the pike. And I think all of that can crowd out clarity. So, And I, I think it's it's really critical for the organization, also the people in it, to know, okay, what are the must-win battles? What are the two or three things we have to hang on to? And I think as a leader, your job is somehow to provide that kind of strategic clarity and steering and with a kind of narrative wrapped around it so it makes logical sense. But in you need to kind of bake into that a kind of understanding this might need to change. If if things continue to evolve at this pace, I mean there are there are really major uncertainties out there at the moment. I think that are what's super... the biggest uncertainty? Well, I think I think the whole the two conflicts. I mean Ukraine, the Middle East. I think on the back of that, and then I think generative AI, and then for the news industry, what are the implications for that in terms of misinformation, disinformation, trust in news? I mean. There could be some kind of horrible coming together there that really kind of <laughs> fundamentally destroys trust in the business as a whole. Personally, I think um, the news industry, the media industry in general, doesn't take enough notice of the creator economy, how strong that is. How I mean, if you look at any of the reports by McKinsey, Golden, Goldman Sachs on the size of that economy, how much attention they're grabbing, how big those businesses are, how professional they are. Something that really worries me is when the kind of creator economy hits the news economy. Yeah. What happens there? Because at the moment we've been protected. It's, you know, they've been very active in the kind of soft news entertainment, so quasi-marketing space, but self-help, growth, whatever. But that could really grow. And I think generative AI, it's, it really fascinates me. What is the smart response to it? There's no, there's no point over-responding right now because in, in three yeah. months it's going to be completely different, but you can't afford to ignore it. So... What on earth is the intelligent response right now? Um, to I guess you have to build up the capabilities, you have to flatten the organisation. Loads of food for thought across the day and this episode, but something I always find useful is to just crystallise a few main learnings and takeaways. Esther, what did you take from the event as a whole? Uh, if you want to make loads of friends and network successfully, bring a five-month-old baby along with you. <laughs> it makes you lots of friends. <laughs> 
No, more seriously, uh, I actually thought some of the things Lucy Kung said about digital transformation, I mean, there's been a great response to her, um, some of the stuff you've written online about the, the session. She said that the whole business model is a challenge, even if digital transformation is done well. And that's something a lot of people haven't actually realized yet. That even a fully working textbook perfect digital business model lands you in a place that is often less well off than before digital transformation and a lot less robust <laughs> i mean this is this is a really depressing point to finish on um but yeah she, she said you know you get to the end of digital transformation and then your focus is about growing enough to meet the ambitions for the news business and that yeah that that just hasn't sunk in for a lot of people yet that even if you do it perfectly it's not necessarily going to land you in a better place right I feel like Lucy provided so many pearls of wisdom across the day and something I really took was what she said about the mass media being redefined. Mm. The publishers can't really be everywhere and cover everything. It's really important that publishers are selective and laser focused over everything from the tech they're pursuing to the content they're focusing on. So really it's about staying true to you know goals and audiences and I suppose while healthy competition should always exist collaboration is something that seems to make more and more sense a little bit like what we try to do today i suppose that idea of not being on everything you know you can't you can't take absolutely every new thing on uh, it was at the heart of probably my favorite thought from the day it was kevin donlin talking about the uncertainty around ai and his point which i guess is obvious in a way but is definitely a lesson for the ages is that when tech development is moving as fast as AI is moving, there's actually a first mover disadvantage. We're so used to talking about first mover advantages, and in that kind of context, it's a disadvantage sometimes. And and you can apply that to anything, right? You can apply that to new video technologies, new social platforms, new NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> that blast from the past. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, and I guess my my the thing that I took from what Kevin was saying is you need to think twice before you pivot. Well, thank you so much to Jacob and the journalism.co.uk team for having us. Well, thanks for thanks for coming. Oh, it was great. It was great. And I mean, the views from that building were incredible. <laughs> Where can we find out more? And most importantly, when is the next News Rewired? Oh, well, uh, clues in the name journalism.co.uk. It's kind of a bit self-descriptive uh, to that point. So, yeah, more coverage to, to come on there. Uh, Newswide.com will have all of the latest info on the next event uh, and that agenda as we start building it. But we'll take you know, a good few weeks to give our brains a rest before we start going back to the drawing board and thinking about you know the agenda. But let us know about any topics you'd like us to uh, consider, anything that you'd really like to know about to take back to your newsroom. Um, and uh, as for the podcast, we're across all, all of the platforms you probably use, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just search and subscribe, journalism.co.uk podcast. If you don't know about Media Voices, then good God, where have you been? <laughs> media Voices is a B2B publishing brand. We focus on the business of media. Um, as well as a weekly podcast, we have a daily newsletter. We bring the top four stories a day from across the media industry to your inbox, as well as regular analysis, an online community forum, and we're working on it right now, our annual Media Moments report. All of that is at voices.media or on your podcast app of choice every Monday. I guess that's all from us really this week. So um, thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 